morning, everyone. In case uh, you came in late and you don't know who I am, I am not Pastor Barden. I am Jim. I'm the youth and kids pastor here at Living Word. been serving here for three and a half years, and it's uh, such a joy to be with you guys this morning. And uh, have you, how have you guys uh, been enjoying your summer so far? You had having a good summer? I, I absolutely love summer. In Rochester, we get about six weeks of it, so we have to make the most. And I'm so thankful that you've given us one-sixth of your summer weekends to spend here with us at Living Word. But there are all kinds of cool, awesome things with summer. I know some of you guys like to go on the lake. Does anyone go on the lake with their boats or different things? Some people love fishing over here. I think that's where Pastor Barden is right now. That's why he's not preaching. He's on vacation fishing. Um, anyone like to, to take walks with their wives? Every husband should raise their hand. Only two did. There's like two smart husbands in this church. But the best thing about summer, by far, is the food. Are you with me? Am I I right? Is not the summer foods the best foods that you could possibly eat? There's the burgers, the hot dogs, uh, the the corn on the cob, the, the beans, all this yummy goodness. It's so good. I love summer foods. But by far, the best summer meal is the garbage plate. I love the Rochester's garbage plate. When I first got here, I was scared to... There's people clapping for the garbage plate. No one, no one will clap anytime. I'm like, Jesus died for you. It's silent, but garbage plate. Woo! <laughs> but I, when I first moved to Rochester, I was presented with a garbage plate, and I refused to eat it because it was weird to like mix the foods together. It scared me. But over time, I've gone to see that you guys are right. Rochester's right, that the garbage plate is amazing. All the best summer foods heaped into one giant plate is the best way to eat it. And um, over the last couple of years, I've had this informal, like, um, informal thing where, for some reason, informal tradition, where we end up the second the nine months of winter ends, our friends Mike and Becca Ware invite us over, and we have like we grill out. It's like 65 degrees, but it's warm enough, and we we have garbage plates. And so this year was the same thing. It was like again like 62 degrees, and they invited us over, and we're eating the first garbage plate of summer. And while we're over there, Mike's little daughter Rosalie comes up to me and Mike and says, "Will you watch us do gymnastics?" And I'm thinking, I don't want to watch you do gymnastics. That sounds really boring. But we go downstairs, and we watch her do gymnastics, and she does a little somersault, and, you know, it looks like a six-year-old doing gymnastics. And we start to, and after every move, she looks at us and goes, are you watching? And I'm like, "Uh, not really. Yeah, yes, we're watching. And so finally, Mike and I are talking, and Rosalie does this thing where if you know Rosalie, if you know little Rosalie, she has um, a lot of spunk. And so she stood there, and, and she does this thing with her eyebrow that her parents, I'm sure, have seen many times, and goes, are you, are you watching me? And we're like, oh, all right, we'll watch you. And, you know, my first thought was, no, we're not going to watch you, Rosalie. This isn't the Olympics. You're a six-year-old doing somersaults. It's not that interesting. But Mike is actually a good dad, and he was like, all right, yes, we'll watch you. So we watched her do the same exact somersault and the same exact handstand she had already done 14 times. And so later we're down there and we're playing this car game with Mike's son, Daniel. And it's like the coolest car game in the world. It can shoot like lasers and stuff. It's really fun. And what I noticed was every time something crazy would happen, in between Daniel like kicking his sister, he would look up at his dad and say, did you see that? Did you see that crash? Did you see that thing? He was just really wanted us. He really wanted his father to see what he had done. And I've, over the last three and a half years, knowing the wares, uh, Mike, Mike and Becca Ware, many of our conversations have been interrupted by their kids saying these, these same words, Mommy, Daddy, did you see? 
Have you ever noticed that with kids, that kids kids tend to constantly want to have their parents witness the thing they've done? Where no jump on the trampoline, no slide down the slide, no uh, cannonball into the pool counts unless mommy and daddy sees. When I was a kid, I would play basketball, and after every shot I would make, I'd look over into the stands to see if my dad saw me make the shot. Mostly because I made about 10% of them, so I wanted to make sure he didn't miss it. But I really wanted my dad to see what I had done. Why is it that kids are, are so consumed with having their fathers see what they do? I think the reason is because young children tend to find their identities in their father's love. Young children tend to find um, their, their place and their identity in the fact that their father sees what they do and loves them. They don't find their identities in the things they're actually doing, but they do those things in hopes that their father, who they do find their identity in, will approve. And for many of us, as we first get saved, we have this childlike faith. We act like Rosalie and Daniel, and we have this faith where we just want our daddy to see. Everything we do, we just hope, Daddy, please see you. And we hope that God sees us. We want him to be pleased with us. And our identity and the source of, of the motivation behind everything that we do is to honor our Father. But over time, we shift from a childlike attitude to a teenager's attitude. I'm also a youth pastor, and I can tell you firsthand, teenagers' attitudes are not always the greatest. But we begin to have that kind of attitude with God where we no longer live and find our identity in our Father's approval, but we begin to find our identity and live for ourselves. Over time, we move away from caring about what our Father sees to caring about what other people see. And our lives become consumed about us. And as we've grown up, our life becomes about something other than our Father. Others of you here um, who aren't Christians probably think the idea of a heavenly father seems a little outrageous. Maybe you're here and you're like, I've never really thought of God as a father and I don't really need God to be my father. And, and the idea of him being a father might seem weird. And maybe some of you, that's not you, where you're not a Christian, but you don't, you don't, you're not appalled or, or find it weird to, to have a God the father. You're not sure and never have thought about God as being your father. But you do know that you need something. Maybe that's why you're here with us today, as you thought that you would go back to church and try to find something to give uh, your life a new sense of identity, a new sense of purpose. I think that our insecurities, discontentment, this desperate need for approval, and constant pursuit to belong to some group points to our need for something, something different, something better, and something more. Uh, I think many people here today both irreligious people and religious people here today are lost children looking for something, not knowing that they have a perfect heavenly father that cares for you and is waiting for you. So how do we begin to shift and reconnect with our heavenly father? How do we begin to find our heavenly father again? Well, I believe that Jesus gives us the compass to discovering, um, the, discovering our lost father through his most famous prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. So at this point in the story, we, uh, in the narrative of Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus, God the Son, has left heaven and is on earth and has begun his ministry. And part of Jesus' ministry was he would begin to teach. He would teach all kinds of places to all kinds of different people. And a lot of his teachings have been compiled in Scripture into one sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so here, Pastor Barton has kind of guided you through the first part of the sermons where he guides us on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
what it means to follow him and to know God. But Jesus begins to take a shift and begins to tackle the issue of prayer. Here's what he says. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the doors and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus begins his teaching on prayer and starts by telling us how not to pray. He says, don't be like the Pharisees that, that go and pray in, in front of a large p- a crowd of people so that everyone can see them. Don't babble on so that it seems, thinking that it will make you look good. But Jesus says that if you pray in this way, that you're praying empty prayers. If you're praying this way, both the re- you're praying empty prayers. He calls out the religious Pharisees and the irreligious Gentiles and says, both of you are praying in ways and praying to things that leave you with empty prayers and ultimately will give you an empty reward. Why were their prayers so empty? Their prayers were empty because they were praying to the wrong audience. They spoke past God. Though their words seemed like they were directed toward God, they were actually speaking past God. And to the things and to the ones that they actually worshipped in, they were worshipping these false gods with their prayers. Not, not imaginary gods that we make up or idols, but rather they were worshipping the people around them. They thought these people gave them their sense of identity. And so as they said these religious words that seemed to be toward God, they actually flowed and were too the real audience, the people around them. But before I was married, when I was single in, in, in high school and college, sometimes we would ha- go on group dates or we'd hang out with, a, with guys and girls or sometimes just we'd be hanging out in the cafeteria and there would be a group of girls sitting in the table next to us. And I was a very nerdy, awkward person back then. Some of you are like back then. <laughs> Uh, I was very nerdy, I was very awkward, and I was also very, very terrified of women. And so I still wanted to like talk to them and get to know them, but I was too afraid to actually like go up and say, like, hi, my name is Jim. So what I would do is I formulated this new strategy where I would sit with my guy friends and talk really loud with the hopes that the girls sitting near us would overhear what I was saying and would immediately fall in love with me. And they would run up to me and they would say, like, will you go out with me? And I'd say, sure, I'd, I'd love to. And so I went on this strategy and I'd say ridiculous things like, you know, oh, just serving the homeless can be difficult. But when you love Jesus as much as I do, no, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that self-absorbed. But I would just say things trying to like brag and trying to show off. And the whole time, and if you're a teenager or, or in college or you're single, I've no, I know you've done this before, where you're really talking to that girl over there, but, you, but, you're, ta- but you're really trying to get the girl over there to hear you. And you, it takes everything in you to not look over at her while you're talking, but you just stare deadlocked at your friend, pretending like he's the one to talk to, hoping that the girl in the corner is actually hearing what you're saying. And that was me. Not only did that never even once work for me, (laughs) not only did that never once even get me a a girl or get a date that way, but it also made my conversations with my friends very empty. See, I had someone right in front of me that actually loved me and cared about me that I could be having this conversation with um, and could be having a meaningful conversation with. But instead of talking to the one that I could have a meaningful conversation with, I was talking past them to the one that I really thought would give me the things I need. We do the same thing with God. 
these religious people were doing the same thing that I was doing with God. It seemed like they were speaking to God, but they were really speaking past God to the ones that they actually worshipped. It seemed like they uh, worshipped God, but the real audience they were speaking to was the people around them. Why was that? The reason they spoke to those people is because ultimately the God that they truly worshipped, though they seemed very religious and their lives looked very religious, the God that they actually worshipped was the God of approval, the God of social status, all these different false gods. And so they would pray in a ways that people could hear, hoping that they would hear and then that their status would be raised up. They hoped that other people would hear and that they would develop a strong reputation. They were praying past the one that could give them meaning. They were praying past them into the real gods that they worshipped. And so Jesus is very frank with them, and he's very frank with us when he says, truly they have received their reward. When you pray to an empty God, when you pray to a God other than our true creator God, we are ultimately praying empty prayers and will ultimately get empty rewards. These rewards that, they could, that these Pharisees could get at best would be temporary moments of self-righteousness and a reputation of holiness, but that could quickly fade and did not have eternal consequences. But we do the same thing. We so often pray empty prayers. We so often seem like we're praying um, to, we, we so often seem like we're praying to God, but we're actually pray, praying to a wrong audience with our words and deeds, and we show the thing that we truly worship by our actions and our words, and the thing that we worship, though we may have been attending church for years, often is not the God that we, that we proclaim is often not the God who created us. Some of you are hearing this passage and are like, this is definitely not me. Never once have I like stood in church and prayed really loud and hoped everyone would hear me. So the Pharisees did that, but that's not me. But we don't typically do this in a literal sense, but we send figurative prayers with our actions and words to other gods. Some of you guys do it with your, your religious behavior, where it seems like the religious thing you're doing is because of your love for God, but ultimately the reason you're doing that thing is because you love something else. Like some of you today might be in church and, and it might seem like you're here because you love God, but ultimately you know it'll make your wife happy. And you're, the real God that you, you worship and the real thing that you find your meaning in is how happy your family is. The motivation behind your action is not your love for God, but is the, the idea of having a happy home. And you're praying an empty prayer with your attendance today and you're receiving an empty reward. Some of you guys serve, and, and it seems like you're serving because you love God, but ultimately the motivation is that you want the people in church to think that you're a really good person. So the reason that you serve is, is not to honor God and to pray to our amazing God through your service, but rather the one that you're really worshiping are the people around you that think that you're an awesome person because you serve. Many of us do this with our morality. I think this is the most common, where we'll live really moral lives and we'll maybe give financially to support the church and we'll do these religious things and, we'll, and it'll appear as if we're worshiping and praying to our God with those actions. But really, we're worshiping a sense of moral superior, superiority. What we find our identity in is not being as bad as those people not being as bad as our brother, not being as bad as, as the neighbor across the street, not being as bad as our coworkers. That's the God we're worshiping with those actions. And ultimately, we receive our empty reward. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he speaks to us and says, truly you will receive your reward. Truly you have received your reward. 
a temporary one that ultimately is, leaves you unsatisfied. But religious people aren't the only ones who pray these empty prayers that Jesus talks about. In fact, uh, irreligious people, people that don't even believe God, are often praying empty prayers. You might say, well, I don't believe in God, so I don't pray. I've never prayed once. But again, we pray with the way we live our lives. We pray, not literal prayers, but we pray in the sense that all our hopes and dreams are surrounded and, and revolve around something. Many of us pray to the God of family where we, we hope that um, we have a perfect family and work so hard to have a perfect family and be the perfect dad, be the perfect mom, go to all the games, have perfect children, and our hopes and our dreams and the things that we're praying to our family, and we receive empty Rewards in that. Many of us pray to the God of money where our whole life is pursuing money. All our hopes, our dreams revolve around how much money we have. And ultimately, we're praying empty prayers to the empty God of money. Some of us pray empty prayers to, to, to the God of, of relationships where we consume ourselves and, and try to find new relationships, but ulti- ultimately thinking that those things will give us all we need. But ultimately, those are empty gods that give us empty rewards. Christians and unchristians alike irreligious and religious people like often find themselves praying empty prayers to empty gods, receiving empty rewards and living empty lives. So how do we move away from this? How do we move away from feeling like we have an empty life or feeling like our relationship with God is empty and doesn't have any impact on our lives? I think here in the scripture that we're looking at today, Jesus has already pointed us to the thing that can cure our empty lives. See, as you read through scripture in your own study, as you take out God's word, if you read in a short section of scripture and you see that there are words repeated frequently in a small section of scripture, that usually means those words are really important. And so here in this section of scripture, in three verses, Jesus repeats the same two words three times. And he's about to again use these same two words a fourth time as he begins his prayer. See, Jesus points us to the answer to our empty lives and our empty prayers by pointing us to our Father. Jesus directs our prayer to our Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus' audience at the time was the people in the nation of Israel. And they would have been used to hearing God as Father, as like the Father of Israel. Kind of the way we would describe George Washington as our founding father. He's the Father of America. But they wouldn't have connected God as like their personal, intimate father. Just like we don't like say, yeah, do you see Daddy Washington over there? I'm so glad that Daddy Washington did those things. We wouldn't say that. That would be ridiculous. If you do say that, you're being ridiculous. Please stop. But, but we won't, and the Israelites were, were used to, again, referring to God as their creator, their founding father, the creator of Israel, the father of Israel. But Jesus does something pretty radical here. He doesn't use language to describe God as a founding father, but instead he uses words that a child would use to describe their dad. He uses a more intimate word, and he describes God as if he were children calling out to our daddy. He completely flips the script on this father perception that the people of Israel would have, and he begins to do this new radical terminology. He begins to share this new radical terminology for God. Now, the people hearing this would be thinking, how is this possible? They could comprehend him as a founding father, but not as a a personal father who loved and cared for them. And Jesus would begin to show how it's possible for those people and how it's possible for us to have a close personal relationship where God can move beyond our just creator father, but actually our personal father by what Jesus was about to do. 
the gospel message begins to help us to see that we have not just an impersonal creator father, but we have a father that loves us and cares for us. It says in another part of scripture that, but when the right time came, God the father sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. God the father was prepared to do anything so that we could be adopted into his family. What the gospel message reveals is that God the Father sent his true son to die and pay the price of our sin so that we, his, 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 his other children who have ran away from him, can be adopted into his family again. The gospel message shows the extent of our Father's love and his willingness to pay any cost so that we could be his children, that we could have a personal experience with, his, with God himself. And what's crazy is sometimes we don't see the weight of the sacrifice of our God, where our God, who is three in one, not only is he the father who mourns the loss of his son, but God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the son who bears the weight of our sin. God is the grieving father and the son experiencing the pain all in one. God suffered so much so that we could be adopted into his family. He paid such a high cost because he wanted us to be his children again. The huge price of the cross should change everything. It should move us from having a creator and creation relationship with God where he's impersonal and far away, but that when we see the price that God was willing to pay, when we see the depths of his love, it should change all the ways that we trust, interact, and speak to him. It should change all of our aspects of our life. It should change, all the, it should change us completely in the way we relate to our Heavenly Father. When I was in college, I... Would take a, I, I was in college in Philadelphia, and my home was in Niagara Falls, and so I'd have to drive six and a half hours up from Philadelphia to get to Niagara Falls. And I was in my dad's car, and it was the first time I'd ever made this trip by myself. And so I'm driving, and I'm like listening to some pop music, like dancing around or whatever, talking to myself, and everything is going really great, when all of a sudden the tie rod on my car pops off. And I lose control of my car, and my car starts to spin. It hits a sign, and it flips, and it lands upside down in a ditch. And so my car is smashed, and, and luckily, by God's grace, I, wasn't, I didn't even have a bruise on me. I was able to get out of the car. I was completely fine. But my dad's car was completely totaled. And so I call my parents to call the cops, and I'm sitting there waiting for my dad to come pick me up, and I'm nervous because I've totaled his car. I'm nervous that he's going to be upset with me. I'm nervous that he's going to be mad at me. But when he gets there, he wasn't mad at all got out of the car and he ran up to me, he hugged me and he, he told me that he loved me and that he cared for me. And so he drove me home and the next few days he just served me and served me and served me. He took me to the insurance place and then paid for my insurance bill. He paid for the sign that I destroyed. He went and he took me to the hospital even though I was fine just to make sure I was okay. He went and he bought me a new car, not a brand new car, but a, 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 nice, a nice car. And What's even crazy is I was scared to drive because I just flipped the car. I was scared to drive home, and I was nervous about it. And so he followed me for two and a half hours on the way back to Philadelphia before I told him I was okay, and then he went back and drove back. He took a day off work to follow me. And when I saw the amount that my dad was willing to sacrifice for me, when I saw the price he was willing to pay for me, I began to see his love in a new way. See, my dad's a great dad, and he, he loves me, but his philosophy of parenting is not like 
the, the helicopter parent that does everything for their kid. My dad very often would say, it's the mother's job to make you feel loved. It's the father's job to make you feel ready. And so that was kind of his philosophy. And I was, uh, as an 18-year-old, just really buttoned heads with him a lot. And it was not probably the healthiest season of our relationship. And I began to kind of forget the love that my father had. But when I saw the price that he paid for me, when I saw that he was willing to spend thousands of dollars for me, that he cared for me, that he was willing to sacrifice so much of his time to, to show because he loved me, it began to change the way that I viewed him. It changed the way I talked to him. It changed the way I trusted him. It changed our relationship going forward. When I believe that when we really begin to see the cost our Father paid for us, our Heavenly Father paid for us, it should begin to change everything. It should begin to change the way we live, the way we talk to him, the way we, the way we uh, pray to him, the, the thing that we find our identity in. See, my dad loved me with an imperfect love, and my dad paid a high cost of thousands of dollars but didn't pay an ultimate cost. We have a God who paid an ultimate cost for us, gave us an eternal reward, and loves us with a perfect love. That kind of love and that kind of sacrifice is one that should shift our entire lives and should shift the thing that we find our identity in. When we see the love of our Father, when we see how strong His love is, it should change everything in us. When we see our Father's love through the light of the gospel, we can begin to stop living these empty lives that we find ourselves living, stop worshiping these imperfect gods that we find ourselves worshiping, and stop praying these empty prayers that we find ourselves praying. The relationship with God our Heavenly Father should be changed in light of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing, and our God is so good, that Jesus, in this passage, as he's begun to show us that we have this personal Father, and through his sacrifice makes a way so that we can have this personal relationship with God the Father, he doesn't just stop there, but he begins to give us um, a, a roadmap to how we can communicate to our perfect Father who loves us. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. is it's, it's a way for us to see how we can communicate to our perfect God who loves us. He starts off the prayer by telling us to pray, Our Father in heaven, which, daily reminds us to da- which reminds us to daily reflect on the fact that Jesus died for us so that we could be adopted by our heavenly Father. It reminds us that God is not impersonal, but is our personal dad. He moves us then to say, Hallowed be your name. Because our God is not just our Father, but He's our Holy Father. He's our set-apart Father. He's our good Father. We see next that, uh, we say next, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As a prayer to ask our Father for help to spread His kingdom, which we actually get to be a part of because we are His heirs, we are His children. And it also, again, reminds us of who God is as we're praying to our God, our Father, our good Father, and also our King. So Jesus instructs us to begin our prayer to center our minds around our Father and then says that as we see who God the Father is, or as we see who God is, how he is our Father, he is our Holy Father, our perfect Father, and he is our powerful Father King, we can begin to pray for our needs and the needs of other people with a new confidence in the light of this truth. We can say, give us this day our daily bread as a request to end the poverty, social injustice, pain, grief that we are personally experiencing because we trust in our God who is willing to die for us. We also pray that all those things will be ended in the world because we have seen how God has changed us too. We say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors without fear. We can bring our sins before our Lord without fear 
because we know he loves us enough to die for us. And so we can trust him to handle and to work us through our sin. We also seen the weight of, of the forgiveness that he's given us. Ask him to help us to forgive others. We plead for him, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil with confidence and security and courage because we trust our good father who we love will help us to overcome the temptation that is inside of us and help us to and protect us against the hateful evil forces of the world. Seeing God the father in light of the gospel changes everything. It should change the thing you live for. It should change the way you live. It should change how you pray. What's really cool about this prayer that Jesus gives us is, as one scholar says, the model for prayer taught, uh, the model for prayer taught to us by Jesus is shallow enough for a baby to bathe in and deep enough for an elephant to swim through. If you're a new believer and don't have much experience in prayer, this prayer is a perfect prayer to help remind you of who your father is, guide you on how to communicate to him, and guide you on how to live. But this prayer is also for the 20, 30, 40-year-old veteran who's been serving Christ for such a long time. It begins to help us to have this childlike relationship with God again where we can begin to say, Daddy, did you see with all our actions? It begins to get us away from that teenage attitude where we live for ourselves or live for other things. It begins to move us from praying to empty gods. It reminds us to gear our and focus our eyes on our good Father who loves us. It reminds us of the gospel, which we tend to forget. It reminds us what we should pray for, what we should desire, how we should live in light of this Father who sent his Son to adopt us. The gospel message revealed through the Lord's Prayer says to Christians, remember your Father, live for your Father who loves you so much, he sent Jesus so you could be adopted into his family. Don't find your identity in the religious things that you do. Do those religious things because you find your identity and your good father. Pray to your good father. Live for your good father. The gospel message says to those who aren't Christians, the father which has done so much to adopt you into his family um, wants you to find security as his child. Will you? As the worship team comes up and we close, my hope for you guys today is that we'll begin to end their empty prayers and their empty lives and that we'll trust our good Father who loves us. So what is our our takeaways for today? If you're here and you're a a Christian, I think there's three ways that you should respond. The first is that as God, the Holy Spirit, has begun to reveal to you the things, the empty things that you're praying empty prayers to, the first step is to repent and to ask God for forgiveness from worshiping those things. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is to find someone that is a Christian that you trust and begin to share uh, with them the thing that God put on your heart. And finally, to begin to reorient your life back to to the gospel message, to reorient your life back to your your good Father. Begin to pray the Lord's Prayer. Take take it line by line each day this week and be reminded of those things. Go through those things and spend time praying the Lord's Prayer. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, but today you've, the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart and you want to begin to follow your good Father, I think your response is the exact same as the Christian's response. Begin to, to confess to God those different things that you've been worshiping, those empty gods that you've been praying to. Ask Him for forgiveness. Find someone that's a Christian, and if you don't know a Christian, you can come and talk to me and to, to tell them the things that you've begun to give 
away to the Lord and finally go through the, good, the, the Lord's Prayer. Spend time in it each week, reconnecting to your good Father. The last people I want to talk to are those who are here who aren't Christians but aren't quite ready to make the commitment to follow God. Your response and your takeaway would be this. Begin to think about your life and think, are there things that you're worshiping? Are there things that you're placing your hope in? And if this God that I've been talking about today is real and true, would he be better than the thing you're worshiping? Think about it. I'd love to see you next week. Right now, I'm going to say a prayer. And we're going to have a chance to to respond and to sing a very fitting song. We're going to sing to our good Father. And it'll be an act of worship about the things he's done for us. So if you guys could stand with me, I'm going to say a prayer. And then we're we're going to sing this song to our Lord. God the Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you've sent your Son for us. I'm so thankful that you care for us and love us. I pray today that God, some of, of your children would see you, that new children would be adopted by you today. Lord, I pray for those who are Christians that have been praying empty prayers to empty gods. I pray, God, the Holy Spirit, begin to reveal what those, those gods are in their lives. Challenge them, God, to follow you, to give up those things and follow you. For those making a first step, Lord, again, just encourage them, Holy Spirit, in their journey. Guide us all. Lord, thank you for being the good, perfect Father we all need. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.